Okay, here we go. Um, first of all, thank you, Emma, for letting me do this. Because I am not um, an expert in this field of singleness or life in general, as you can probably tell so far. Um, but I am so grateful for the opportunity to the opportunity to give the potential to God administering grace to you all. Because I love you all as my sisters in Christ. And I really hope and pray that by the end of this you are encouraged. And most of all that you see Jesus as more beautiful and more glorious and more satisfying than you did at the beginning. Um, so, first... How many of you are married? Can you just raise your hand? Just so I have an idea. Okay. Are there any singles in this? <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> just making sure. Good, because I'm going to talk to you guys too, and that really helps to know that it's about half. Okay. There's my pen. All right, so the introduction. Um, I am one of six children. My four older siblings are all married and have children, 18 grandchildren. It's a full house. And then I have a little sister, Mackenzie, who's five years younger than me, who she just got married last summer, which leaves me the last one standing. <laughs> and everyone points it out every time we go through the whole line. My dad's like, yeah, do you know anyone? Uh, <laughs> so not, I've met like five of you so far. So let me just give you a little bit of an explanation of who stands before you. Um, I, recently, I came across the seniors prolatives from my high school graduation is on the blessed internet and I stumbled across it. Um, I was, so seniors all voted different things for each person. I was voted most likely to have 10 kids, <laughs> most likely to live with their parents until she was 30, <laughs> and the one that won the vote, most likely to ask her boyfriend to repeat himself when he proposes because she was thinking about something else. <laughs> <laughs> made me pause afterwards and realize, like, oh, okay, I, I should probably listen to people more clearly. Um, so to be completely honest, when I came across that, I honestly had this pang of embarrassment when I read the most likely to live with her parents till she was 30 because I turned 30 next summer. <laughs> and I was like, I'm still living with my parents. Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, throughout my childhood, amongst the fear of being kidnapped because of The Rescuers, that movie, horrible movie, the fear of being left behind because I'm number five of six children, I, I tend to linger, and uh, I was legitimately afraid of being one of those older singles in the church. That was just something, I don't know why, but I just thought, I don't, I don't ever want to be that. And lo and behold, as I get older... And I still remain unmarried. <laughs> that fear becomes a reality, and I've had to face it. Um, and I can stand before you today, I do stand before you today, feeling so happy in the Lord, feeling the pain and hurt of longing for something that I don't have, and feeling the supreme joy of living unmarried in the church. Um, but, so there's, it's all of it. It's all of it. It's, it. There's joy and there's sadness and there's contentment and there's longing. Um, but one of the biggest things that God's been doing in my heart the past couple years has been to expand, expand my understanding of life, longing, and love. So those are the three things that we're going to look at. And I hope that it serves you. Otherwise, you just have some really good strudel, and that'll be good. <laughs> life. Point one. What is life all about? What are we here on earth for? In the words of Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All of reality, from the undiscovered galaxies to the hidden microscopic wonders of the ocean, all of it was created by the God of glory and of holiness. He defined reason. He is the great reality with which everything else reckons with. Even if we're uncomfortable with the idea, that's just the reality. But he is also love itself. 
the Father, Son, and Spirit eternally exist in a holy fellowship of delight and goodness and love. And this God desired to create a people for his presence, to share his goodness and glory. Not without, wait, hold on, not out of any need he had, but out of the overflow of his heart of love. That is the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that we sing about too on Sundays. But his people turned inward and they twisted the glory of the image of God and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Daily, every human heart on this earth commits cosmic treason in not glorifying God or enjoying him. It's what we were made to do, to be worshipers and adorers of God. And we choose to drink from muddy waters of selfish cravings. But God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus Christ bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. As believers, we're a forgiven people, ransomed by the blood of Jesus for the glory of God, called to be holy as he is holy. Here's another take on this idea from Sinclair Ferguson that I found extremely helpful, especially if you've grown up in the church hearing this idea of holiness all the time. What then is God's holiness? Oh, and if you know Sinclair Ferguson, he has this Scottish brogue that's amazing. What What then is God's holiness? Um, That will not serve you. (laughs) What then is God's holiness? What do we mean when we say, Holy Father, and Holy Son, and Holy Spirit, and Holy Trinity? We mean the perfectly pure devotion of each of these three persons to the other two. We mean the attribute in the Trinity that corresponds to the ancient words that describe marriage, forsaking all others and cleaving only unto thee. Absolute, permanent, exclusive, pure, irreversible, and fully expressed devotion. It is the sheer intensity of that devotion that causes seraphim, whose holiness is perfect creaturely, to veil their faces. If this is what holiness means in God, then in us it must also be a corresponding, deeply personal, intense, loving devotion to him, a belonging to him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve on our part. Simply put, it means being entirely his, so that all we do and possess are his. That quote <laughs> rocks my world because that does, not com- that does not describe my relationship with the Lord currently. And I don't know if you all were thinking that as it was going on. That's not okay. <laughs> That's new. <laughs> because that is the kind of God that we serve, and that is the kind of fellowship that he invites us into. So whether you're young or old, whether you're single or married, whether you're an introvert or extrovert, whether you're from one country or another, God calls us into this intense personal devotion with to him. Now it's all very theoretical and wonderful, but what does that look like on a practical level? So my sister's my little sister Mackenzie married her husband, Zach. Um, he has one older brother whose name is Pat, and he's severely autistic. So I was talking with Zach's parents um, at their wedding, and they were just recounting that whole process because they found out that he, was gonna, that he was severely autistic when he was two and a half. So their firstborn son, you have all these hopes and dreams of going to grow up, He's going to get married. We're going to see him raise a family to the glory of the Lord. We're going to have enjoy empty nesting time. And in a moment, all of that's gone. Like, reality hits you in the face. My life is not going to be what I thought it was going to be. And as, she, as Zach's mom recounted this, she said, and in that moment, I thought, yeah, all right. This is what God has for us to do. And I was so struck by how beautiful, for one thing, that 
that devotion to the Lord's will was in her to see that. And I'm sure they had struggles and it, there is a legitimate grief that comes with losing what you thought was going to be. But there is also so much honor that is brought to the Lord when in those moments we choose to follow the Lord and to, to follow him where he, wherever he leads. We have a perfect example of that in Jesus. So throughout his life on earth, Jesus was all consumed with doing the Father's will. And if you think of any, anything that perplexes you about decisions he made, not healing, or not going to certain places, not doing certain things, telling people not to tell the others who he was, that was all because he had one singular devotion to the Father's will. And what was the Father's will? John six thirty nine to 40. Oh, yeah, 38 to 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The humility in that is just stunning. He's, he is the word through which all galaxies were created. And yet he submits to the Father. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus, our precious Savior, endured suffering, learning obedience. He endured the wrath of God for our sins on the cross for his father because his father your father desires to save the people for his presence and in his presence there is fullness of joy that's what it was all for that's the joy that he had set before him but we're not in his presence yet <laughs> and we are stuck on this cursed earth <laughs> so point two longing we wrote a lot about that I'm sure I have a friend named Becca. You would love her. She's full of life. She loves gardening and music and books. She has four incredible children. We drove out west, and I never heard one of them complain, except for the youngest. He was a boy, and he always asked for snacks. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she's also a widow. Three years ago, her husband, Wade, left for work one morning, drove through an intersection, and was T-boned by a pickup truck that was running a red light. And in one completely unplanned, unexpected, ugly moment, all of Becca's dreams of a long life with her husband on their beautiful farm, raising their kids, loving each other, sharing with their community, was snuffed out. She remarked to me recently, we were talking, she said she would give anything just to have one more conversation with Wade. Her longing is deep and it's real. I have another friend named Kanan. She's from Ethiopia. Possibly, probably the most beautiful woman you've ever seen walking this earth. She's married to Michael and they have two kids, Moses and Eden. She was pregnant with their third child, a son, a surprise pregnancy, last spring when they found out that um, baby Elijah had a rare genetic disorder, which he would most likely die from after birth, or in birth. She gave birth to their son on June 21st. And they went to be home with the Lord on a hot summer day, two days ago, one year ago, um, six days later. In the weeks following Elijah's death, Kanan told me how she longed with all her heart to hold her sweet Elijah to smell him again, to hear him breathing. Carissa longs to eat and sleep without excruciating pain raging through her body. Sue longs for her daughter to be rescued from destroying herself through alcohol and drugs and abusive boyfriends. Courtney longs to have children. And I'm sure every single one of you can add people and longings to that list. We live, we breathe the air of this cursed earth that guarantees pain and disappointment. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the only table over here, <laughs> keep breathing and unfortunately you'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Open your eyes, lift your head, 
Look around you. There's brokenness and futility and unfulfilled dreams everywhere. We speed on in life, though, and we try to avoid eye contact with death and sickness and suffering, and then it slaps us in the face. In a way, it's tempting to try and dismiss our unfulfilled longings. So for me, I know, as a single, longing for kids, longing, especially longing for marriage, feels a little bit just like, ah, I'm just struggling with discontentment. I'm really fine. Like, I'm fine. Life is good. I'm fine. But as Christians, we have all the reason, so we have all the reason in the world to rejoice in gratefulness for all God has given us. Think about what he has done to save us, the grace that we breathe every day. He is a good God. And we can choose to rejoice in that. But making, so making a priority of rejoicing in God's grace doesn't nullify the validity of grieving the incompleteness of this world. It's so important for Christians to get this. Because we hold, the world is watching. Unbelievers don't have an answer to their pain. But we do. So if we're not able to face it and experience the, the deeper joy that's in underneath that, we're robbing ourselves of something amazing, but we're also showing the world, we're losing the opportunity to show the world what Jesus came to make possible. So you can face the pain that you fear. We follow our Savior in this way. In John 11, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, uh, it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit that, and greatly troubled. He was angry. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Our Savior didn't ignore. He came to he came into our suffering. He experienced the suffering that we experience. He was a man of sorrows. You have a fellowship with him that is sweet and real. But it's not only that, you have all the Psalms of lament. You have Book of Job and Lamentations. How kind of God to give us his truth through the broken words of suffering saints. Not all joy. <laughs> you read Job, you'll find. <laughs> I just finished a Job, The Wisdom of the Cross by Christopher Ashe. It's a commentary on Job. And it is, I was so comforted by how throughout it there's this perplexing theme. Job doesn't know why he's experiencing this, and he's never given the reason why. But he does see God through it and he gets to know him and that is worth it all so if you're in a season of perplexing suffering or intense longing I encourage you to explore the grace available in scripture and good books I have a list that I can share later probably um, God doesn't leave you alone in your suffering and he's not unaware and he's not uncaring he cares deeply he cares deeply so I'm going to offer three encouragements related to longing one don't dismiss your longing grace can only sink as deep as you open up your heart to the Lord and to others pain and suffering are a gift in the way that they broken open our, break, break open our hard hearts so a helpful image for me is the idea of um, a field that has to be broken with a plow in order for the seeds to get sown. Um, our hearts sometimes are so crusty with distraction and with self-interest and with all these things. Suffering really serves to, and it can be simple suffering, like some annoying coworker. All these things that just break, God uses it to break open this crust that we build up so that he can pour the rain of his grace 
Like it goes deep the deeper that we open up. Because you can't, if you just suppress it, then it's just going to stay there. But God has given us the ability and the opportunity to open up to others. He, that's how he administers care is through his people and also to himself. So one of my favorite verses, Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him. Trust in God at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God is intimately acquainted with the well-worn trails of your heart and mind. He knows what stirs up waves of sadness in your heart. He made you. He wired you. He sees you. And he is near to comfort you and to give grace to you through his word, his fellowship, and through his people. Marshall Seagull, I just came across this um, recently, says, Jesus never gets tired of caring for the tired. How great is that? Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is it not? Oh, see. Okay. As long as I'm not responsible. Great. Look at his nice little things on here. He has praise the name. Uh, okay, two. Your longing is a gift. So, and in saying this, I, I hope you're thinking of whatever weighs on your heart, whatever causes that strain. For single people, lots of times longing for kids, longing for a husband. For marriage, it could be longing for understanding, longing for kids, longing for the salvation of someone you know. Just fill in the blank. This longing is a gift. It gives us the opportunity to grow closer to the Lord. And knowing God better is the greatest gift this life has to offer. It's what eternity is about. Often suffering has a way of clearing the fog in your heart and giving you a clear path to fellowship with God. How, how many of you have encountered that sweetness of just coming to a place of desperation and you open up God's word and something sticks and it's like he's speaking straight to you? That's a sweet thing. It reminds you of what really matters. There's also a kind of suffering that seems to fog up your heart and brain. Things like depression, unclear decisions. But in all cases, we must go to God with these things. That's what Psalm 62, 8 is all about. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So this is the second way it's a gift. Suffering, though unfulfilled uh, through unfulfilled longing, also gives us the ability to empathize with others who also have unfulfilled longings. That doesn't mean it has to be the same unfulfilled longing. And this was huge for me, I think last year or the year before that. Don't believe the lie that you're alone in your longing. Every single one of us has something that we wish for that we don't have. And it's most likely a legitimate, a good desire. But you're not, so we, we're a part of a fellowship of the saints. And we're well acquainted with the incompleteness of this world. But that's what fits us for heaven. It makes us long for it. It, makes us, it reminds us that we're not home yet. Because it's so easy to believe that. And we're going to talk more about how that plays into the life of the church, which I will get to in a second. Not actually a second, a few minutes. Three, your longing is temporary. Praise the Lord! <laughs> Though it is good and right to acknowledge your desires before the Lord, ask and keep on asking, we must also at the same time stay our souls on our one true hope. We were made for Jesus Christ. Here's a quote by Marshall Siegel on the brevity of, <laughs> brevity of marriage that it can 
but it can probably apply to whatever unfulfilled longing you hold in your heart. Not yet married. Oh, yeah, this book. It's from this book. It's a favorite. I recommend it to you all. And it's free. There's a free PDF on Desiring God's Sight if you want to look at it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so longing, it's, not, it's temporary. It says, if we are married in this life, it will only be for a brief moment. Because the thing with longing is you want it so badly and you think it's going to satisfy you, especially something like marriage, because it's so unknown. But he says, we won't regret that brevity of marriage 10,000 years from now. We really won't. Those years will seem like seconds. Those years of whatever you're thinking about that you've waited and waited and waited will seem like seconds compared with all the gloriously thoroughly happy time we will have after this life ends. We need to think about that as we weigh the intensity of our desperation to have it now. We need to ask if we have made marriage a qualification for a happy and meaningful life. Am I undone and miserable by the prospect of never being married? That's a hard question. <laughs> Do I think of myself as incomplete or insignificant as an unmarried believer? Ultimately, we will all be single forever, and it will be gloriously good. Marriage truly is a small and short thing compared with all we have in Christ forever. Married friends, do you realize this? The joy that you find in being married is meant to whet your appetite for the intimacy overload we'll experience when we finally reach our rest. All our desires for good things are ultimately fulfilled in our restored relationship with God that Jesus purchased. Single friends, don't you see? You long to be truly known and loved, and you have that in God. That's a relationship that will continue into eternity. It's not insignificant. And it's not a waste. No matter how I feel on a certain day or how perplexing or disheartening circumstances on earth become, we have an anchor beyond the veil of heaven. He will keep us. He will protect us. And he will bring us safely home. Praise the Lord. Precious Savior said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, in my own life, this is, these aren't just words. This has been life-giving to me, <laughs> these realities. I think it was three years ago on Mother's Day. I, always, I was okay with not being married. I figured, I mean, I will. I will. Like, in a few years, it'll be great. Um, and then I met a guy that I really liked, and I was like, well, <laughs> maybe a little sooner would be great. Um, but Mother's Day, three years ago, it hit me. It wasn't even, it was just Mother's Day. We weren't even talking about mothers. We were worshiping, and I realized, I long more than anything in this world to bring a child into this world. And to show them the beauties of creation and the Lord. And to raise them up in the fear of him and to introduce them to the Lord. And I realized that I really didn't trust God to be withholding it. I didn't trust his timetable. Because we do. It's, there is a timetable there. And that was really hard. Um, but... Conveniently, or providentially, I was worshiping while I was realizing this. And it was a moment of, okay, here's where I live out what I have said that I believe. Lord, this is yours. I trust you with this. I don't know if I'll ever get married. I don't know if I'll ever have children. But I trust you with it. Um, that New Year's Eve, I think I got my timetable right, I was with staying with, uh, I traveled to my brother's house, his family, for Christmas and New Year's. Just New Year's, not Christmas. Uh, with my parents. So, traveling with my parents as a single, <laughs> not the most emboldening kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I'm single. Um, it's like reduced to the little girl that I um, And I remember I slept, I slept in my nieces and nephews' room. 
three little kids breathing softly in the night. New Year's Eve, I was lying on the couch, crying, crying out to the Lord. I don't understand. I don't, I just want. So, and I, it was like one of those conversations with the Lord. Like, why are you crying? Ah, uh, because it's painful. <laughs> why are you crying? Why are you so sad? Because I don't have children of my own. Because my life is full of kids. <laughs> kids everywhere. I don't have kids. I don't have kids of my own. That's why I'm sad. And I heard this sweet voice. It wasn't a voice, but the words, the gift is now. And it was just a simple phrase. And I, had, I just thought about it. The gift is now. While I was crying, <laughs> the gift is now. Like, this gift that I long for, this gift of children, is not now. That probably, hopefully, is a gift one day. But it wouldn't be the right gift for me right now because he's not given it to me right now. His gift, whatever involves, is incorporated in my life right now, is a gift from the Father. Like, this moment right here is a huge gift. <laughs> So it just put a whole different perspective on things. And it was like the next morning, I was like, go, everything's great. <laughs> I love my life. <laughs> but it was so helpful to just have this. The gift is now. Now is the gift. It's not something, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it's not something, oh, it's like something, a good gift that's not given right now means it's not the right, it's not a good gift for right now. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, anyways, so these longing, but it's so important to not dismiss your longing. It's so important. It's so freeing to open up to others, like with the deepest thing. Start with the Lord, because if you haven't done that, anything else won't satisfy this need that you have to be understood. You need to pour out your heart to the Lord and say the things that. You only think in your head that he already knows because <laughs> he reads your mind. But that, Lord, I don't understand why you're waiting. And I don't understand why you haven't given this to me. Because not only does that strengthen your relationship with him, but he is so faithful to reward those who seek him. That's what it's all about. It's seeking him in your suffering. And he is so kind. So just pray that, Lord, please meet me here. Because this is where I'm at. No matter how much I just act like I'm not there with other people, this is where I'm at. And I need you to meet me here. Because you realize how, if you approach him in honesty, that's where he's going to meet you. With honest, real faith. Like, his, this is sufficient for your fears and your doubts that you don't say out loud. It really is. It'll hold up against everything. But if you say it and you're still floundering, or even if you're not, it's so good to open up to someone that you trust. Which, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, there is sweetness to be found in opening up. And this is something, I'm just going to say, this is something, <laughs> I struggle with that, opening up. I like to have my whole safe place inside of myself. Um, but something that someone said recently that was so eye-opening. I feel safe with the Lord. I don't feel safe with other people. And especially people that I don't know very well. But the way that you get to know people very well is by opening up. <laughs> um, but realizing that God gives grace. He desires to give grace to us. He gives it through his word. He gives it through fellowship with him. He gives it through his people. And you won't know what that's like unless you open up. Because that's how you receive it. So anyways. Okay. Um, third is love. He's expanded my understanding of love. And I hope this helps you all because this has to do with the church. Um, being unmarried can be pretty lonely. <laughs> you don't have... You're someone that's always 
for you, always on your team, always there when you call, and actually wants to be with you, and you want to be with them. Instead, you have a group of people with all differing opinions about your life, and you tend to feel quite stretched out or quite isolated from everyone. Um, I found my joy can evaporate in a matter of seconds when my focus turns inward on myself in relation to relationships. But God made us to live in community. I don't know if you're like me and you prefer to be on your own, or if you battle constant desperation to be around people. But either way, community in the church provides a massive dose of grace to singles. And this is where the married people come in. How so, you say? Here you go. Mark 10, 28 to 30. I never knew this was in the Bible until a couple years ago. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. To all those who trust and follow him, Jesus grants a spiritual family and an inheritance. In anticipation of our very tangible family and inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth, he gives us the local church where you have spiritual mothers and fathers, spiritual brothers and sisters, spiritual sons and daughters, which is the sweetest thing. Do you see your local church, this church, in that way? Do you see the children in your life as spiritual sons and daughters? Do you make time for them? How are you seeking to be a Christ-focused presence in their life? Do you seek to care for and honor your spiritual fathers and mothers in the church? those older than you? Do you see your peers as your brothers and sisters? Do you look out for them? Do you care about them? Do you keep track of them? Do you think about them? Are you generous with your time, your thoughts, and your love with all those you come in contact with? And especially to those in the household of faith. That's from scripture. There's a feast of joy and memories and love to enjoy in the local church. Yet I find I so quickly cut myself off from that joy. And I exclude myself with unhelpful thoughts. Like, they don't understand what I'm going through. Sure, this is great, but it's not children. It's not my children. It's not marriage. They're just reaching out to me because they feel bad for me. (laughs) That's a good one. Or they're married, they're happy, they have no more say in my life. That's not a good one. Do you realize how ridiculous it is to complain about something that you're cutting yourself off from by complaining? (laughs) You think, yeah, you can't benefit from it if you've cut yourself off from it. So you're never going to know what a great thing it is until you open back up to it. How much better... To have an open heart towards the people who love you most, and they really do. And it's hard to believe. I struggle with this. People you'll spend eternity with. Fellow believers you have an eternal bond with. You're going to know them for the rest of eternity. How do we treat them in light of that? How do we treat each other? An open heart, which is the scariest thing, (laughs) to I think, to a single person, but probably to most people. That idea of opening yourself up, being vulnerable, honest about your struggles, eager to bless and love. If you're doing this already, know God's pleasure, know and feel God's pleasure, and his promise that your labor is not in vain. He's doing more through you than you are aware. And I can go a long time on that one, because it is so cool how God has designed the church to glorify himself 
the wisdom in it. So practicals, three areas you could focus on. One, families. Marshall Siegel gives a helpful example in this book. <laughs> Be intentional about spending time. Oh, so I'm talking to unmarried people right now. But married people, listen up because you listen to, you're in here. Be intentional about spending time with and learning from people from other stages of life. Other stages, not singlehood. It's one of the greatest blessings of being a part of a healthy church. The opportunity to interact with believers who have already experienced what you're experiencing now and are going to experience. Hang out with married people. If you're not around enough to see any ugliness or messiness in them, you, you might not be around enough. <coughs> don't impose on people, but don't be afraid to initiate the conversation either. Offer to babysit on date night, or help with yard work, or bring a meal when one of the kids goes down sick. Then be a student. Ask questions. Take notes on what to imitate. As our minds and hearts are being shaped by scripture for marriage, we need examples of flawed but faithful marriages. <coughs> and this is a hard one because I know for me, in my family of five married people, six, my parents are married, um, <laughs> which, and then you double it because they're all couples, you know what I'm saying. Um, when I am with my family, and family is the hardest because they know you best, so they're not really seeking to gain your favor. Um, <laughs> the conversation, probably eight times out of ten, drifts to houses and what everyone's doing in their houses, like home improvement. My mom's super handy, so everyone, everyone's handy. Or children and what all the kids are doing and the school will work and all that kind of stuff. Which are great topics, except I don't have any children in the house to contribute to the conversation. So in my mind, I can easily drift inward. The focus comes inward, which never helps a conversation. If we're all, imagine a table where everyone's just thinking about what they don't have to contribute. It's not going to be the most edifying or fruitful conversation. So instead, you can exercise love in taking an interest. And it's hard because it's not very interesting sometimes. <laughs> like, what color are you painting the chimney this time? <laughs> I'd really like to know. <laughs> but have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you're talking and it's all really polite and wonderful and then you hit on something that they love? Like, I was, actually, that's a bad example. I, <laughs> I was in an airport <laughs> And I started a conversation with a guy at a bar. <laughs> Don't do this, girls. I was naive. Um, but we were talking and talking, and then all of a sudden I find out that he, what was he? I think he was an archaeologist or something fascinating. So, so I'm like, oh. So then he starts talking about it, and the conversation goes on for like another hour, and I was actually really interested in what he was talking about because it was very interesting. But there's some, a light that goes on when people start talking about something they're interested in. So you think, like, well, yeah, parents, they're kids. Of course they're going to be interested in them. So love is taking an interest and try, finding joy in what they find joy in. It's a, com it's a good skill to have <laughs> in general, but I think it's hardest with the people that we know well because you think, well, they should know me well enough to know that I don't find joy in this. <laughs> That, that's not good. Um, a good. Another example, and this is very fresh. Um, last night, I went to Manly Harbor with my dad. And it was great. It was rainy, but it was great. And um, the whole time, so they came here, I think, two years ago or something. Had, uh, sorry, they. My mom and dad came together. My dad is in love with my mom. And, which is great. But the whole time we were together last night, he's like, oh, I just wish I had mom was here. <laughs> we at the restaurant, he's like, you know what to make this better? My mom. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, she would love this sweater. I should find this sweater. I like this for your mom. And it was like, I love it. I, there's, I love it. I'm so grateful to have parents that are in love with each other. But I was in a selfish moment, and I was just thinking, I wish I had someone that I wished that was here. <laughs> I wish I knew what kind of things there was like in the store. 
got very sullen. And then I realized that I was sinning, because then I stopped doing that and confessed it to the Lord. Um, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's so easy to drift that way. But married people, hey, what about you? So when you're talking to single people, don't talk, no, <laughs> talk about your kids. Um, but also take an interest in their lives. Find out what, they, what they're interested in. And it's, it could be their job, but it could not be. Because jobs sometimes are really boring. And I feel like sometimes that's all you have to talk about. It's like, well, how's work going? <laughs> I have other things that I like, too. <laughs> I like being outside. Books, maybe they're readers. That would get them going. Um, or, you know, whatever. But you have to know them in order to know what to ask about. It's love. Build each other up in love. And through that, every conversation that you have where you're laying down your preferences and you're seeking to love the person in front of you, being patient and kind and all those things on that list, that strengthens this church. That every time that you decide to offer to babysit, even though you're afraid that they're going to keep on asking you, that is <laughs> that is building up the church. Married people, every time you ask a single person to come over, not to babysit, but just to have dinner, that's building up the church. You think, go through the list of all these ways that you can love one another, and you know every single one of those is not in vain. It's not just, this is the thing that we do at church. No! It's a miracle that we're not turned inward, but we're turned outward. And you think that creates strong bonds. It also gives the potential for hurt, which is where the risk is involved. But that's where the miracle of the gospel comes in. And that's when you go back to the longing section. And you remember that we're not home yet. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to fail each other. But it's the commitment to love each other through that that builds strong believers, a strong community. Um, yes, okay, so one more thing on the marriage thing. Marriage doesn't suddenly, <laughs> don't think that you can't learn anything from married people. It doesn't suddenly transform them to another or a different level. They still have the same nature of struggles, disappointment, confusion, distraction, loneliness, lust, etc., we do well to not discount someone's counsel simply because they're in a different season of life. If we're really desperate for grace, we'll take it from whatever means God puts in our lives. Even if it's someone that's saying it not the way that you prefer. Two, friends. So families, friends. As we become more independent as singles, we can tend to become more isolated. Make sure you have a small group of people in your life who know you well and aren't afraid to call you, call you out on things, whom you also feel a responsibility to care for and exhort. Two caveats. You don't have to find BFFs sworn for all lifelong friends. It doesn't have to be those kinds of friends. Those are a gift, but friendships often change with seasons. And people move away, and people get married, and then they're gone. <laughs> hold, them with, hold friendships with an open hand. And with a committed heart. Because you can love them even when they move away. But that doesn't mean you're going to have to be together all the time still. Look around you at those who are already in your life. And then work out from there. Take conscious actions to make time for friends. That's important. And I fail at that miserably. Take the initiative to bless others. Take time to think about others. What they enjoy what interests them, etc. If anyone's ever been in love, you know how often, how much time you spend just thinking about that person. I wonder what makes them tick, and I wonder if they like this. I wonder, I know that that interests them. Maybe I can do this so that I can give this to them. Or maybe love goes to all sorts of ways. <laughs> That's the kind of, not that exact kind of love, but that committed, interested love is what Jesus calls us to, to love one another. And it reaps much fruit. 
Seek to be a joy to be around. Not as a people pleaser, but as a legitimate desire to be a blessing to your community. You think of every single one of us thought to be a joy to everyone else. A blessing to be around. That would be a beautiful thing. Um, if friendships is a, not issue, but a, a topic that you're interested in, um, there's a book called Messy Beautiful Friendship by Christine Hoover that's really good. Three, mentors. This gets into like Titus 2 stuff. But if I hadn't said that, would you still be listening? <laughs> Sometimes there's an attitude with Titus 2. And I heard a talk by Jeff Perswell on the topic of Titus 2. Actually, it was a sermon at our church. And it blew my mind. Because he basically outlined how God's, the way that God structured his people and the community is that an older generation would pass on the faith and his word to a younger generation. That's like how he sought to preserve his truth. And that's what we're disregarding when we say, oh, Titus 2, no, I'm not, I'm not into that. At least in the States. I don't know if it's here, but that seems to be a thing. It's fallen out of fashion. There's very much an everlasting fashion that needs to stay. Uh, it's really, really helpful to have a couple women in your life who you know you can go to with questions, counsel, etc. Friends are great, but they're also generally the same age and generally going through the same things that you're going through. So it's like, I don't know how to help you, but I'm sorry, I know what you mean. Which is actually kind of nice to be like, yes, you know my pain. And then you come to this person and you're like, well, this is what you need to do. Like, no, <laughs> just be with me in my pain. <laughs> I don't need truth right now. You need both. You need both. Preferably this person will speak in love. But also if they don't, like that doesn't discount what they're saying. They can still speak the truth. And we need it. This book doesn't exactly say gracious things sometimes. Um, friends are, oh yeah, okay, so find some trusted counselors who have already walked through and learned from things you're going through and drowning in, possibly, and pursue them. Um, yeah, last thing. Don't let your feelings, your passions, your doubts, experiences, or self-preoccupation rob you of the joy of pouring out your life for others. Don't let the social stigma of whatever Singles are only wanted to watch the children <laughs> or anything like that to keep you from the joy of pouring out yourself for other people. Isaiah 58, 10 and 11. If you, this is a promise from God's word. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden. Oh, like a spring of water, <laughs> whose waters do not fail. As women, we are life givers and nurturers. That is what God created women to be. Life givers and nurturers. He equipped us to be this, and he called us to be this. So thinking about your life, honestly, where are you pouring out your time, your affection, your energy, your love? Are you abiding in the love of Christ, and from that security, freely giving of yourself for the good of those around you? If you're not feasting upon the living bread, you're going to crave lesser comforts but he really is enough. Do you believe that? We must keep our hearts happy in the Lord for any of this to be enjoyed fully, which takes both relationship. If, you're not happy, if your heart is not happy in the Lord, you're going to seek way too much out of relationships or you're not going to seek anything out of relationships. And neither one pleases the Lord. Whereas if your heart is happy in the Lord, you can enjoy it for what it really is and what it can really give, which is wonderful. Singles and the church. Um, are you looking out for the overlooked and ignored? Are you serving in ways that require more time and focus? Or is your church getting the, your leftovers? 
If so, where are you investing yourself? Or perhaps you feel overused by the church. Don't let that bitter seed take root. Resentment does not easily give up its hold in your heart, but it can be uprooted by the gospel of grace. I came across this quote from Streams in the Desert, which is a book. It says, mm, and does this, does this describe your heart? Be willing to be only a voice, heard but not seen, a mirror whose surface is lost to view because it reflects the dazzling glory of the sun. A breeze that springs up just before daylight and says, the dawn, the dawn, and then dies away. Are we willing to be just one piece in God's masterful work that he is doing through the church and in the church? Or are we focused on ourselves and looking for that one thing that will make our life worth it? Jesus left us the church. He established the church as a miracle where self-preoccupied sinners of all different shapes and sizes and personalities are being transformed from the inside out. Every single one of you is being made into the image of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of love. The more inward you turn, the more problems you'll see in your church, your life, and those around you. The more upward and outward you look, the more you search for his glory in his word and his people the more beautiful and wonderful the church and this life will be in your eyes. It's not without disappointment and pain, because we're still sinners, but God who began a good work in each of us will complete it. We're simply required to one... I think I'm missing a word here. (laughs) To give one another a good dose of grace in the process. There we go. Yes! Relational issues, all that stuff, it can all be answered. I have the answer <laughs> by showing one another more grace. Show them more grace. Keep giving them grace. And that's hard. But the more that you're drinking from the fountain of grace in the gospel, the easier it is to pour it out towards other people. I have this whole section about temptations, but I am. <laughs> what do you think? I have, and then I have a conclusion. Well, there you go, that's application. Maybe can we get into that? Yeah, probably. Yes. <laughs> um, are we going to talk about lust? <laughs> Let's talk about that really quickly, because I think it is way not talked about in women's circles. Um, we're pursuing holiness. We're pursuing undivided, devo- undistracted devotion to the Lord. Which requires, ev- that means everything we are is his. Our dreams, our appearance, our friends, our Instagram, our sexuality, our families, our humor. Everything is God's. And he is at work to make us into the image of his son. But there's so many temptations along the way. I have four, and mm, I'll just do this one first. Um, lust. <laughs> um, It is very acceptable and easy in our culture today as women to feast our eyes and minds and hearts on men and women who are not ours. But that is not the way our Savior set for us to follow. We are entirely his. Your thoughts at night, your deep desires, your sexual cravings, they all belong to Jesus. I'm finding the older I get, especially being unmarried, the more ruthless I have to be with fleeing temptation because it comes harder. For me, that looks like avoiding most romantic comedies (laughs) and pop romantic songs because music influences me a lot. Um, Means looking away during makeout scenes. Means not browsing Instagram's explore tab because I generally find junk on there. It means looking up the parent guide for movies before watching them. Just me. Just looking it up before I watch it. And I don't do that every time. I wish I did, because I've definitely seen things I wish I didn't see. Um, because I know that once I've, once I've viewed something and in, or indulged in something, those images and feelings settle into my heart, robbing me of present satisfaction in Christ and future joy in Christ's bought pleasures of marriage. 
It's not just about saving yourself for marriage. It's about saving yourself for the Lord. And sinning against him in that way dishonors him. And it takes away from your love of him. We must keep our conscience tender and clear. If you're aware that this is an area of bigger struggle for you, don't hesitate to involve one or two trusted friends in confessing your sin to them and asking for their accountability. And if you've had any um, like sexual abuse or any sexual sin in your past, there's a book called Making All Things New by David Pallison. That's amazing. I, ha- I don't have any of that in my past, but I was significantly affected by the book. Just because reading books by trusted authors on sex is so good because you realize how much of the world's view of sex you're taking in all the time. And then you read these books and they're talking about it. It's like, oh, that's what it's all about. You totally miss it. Don't be self-sufficient. Don't be self-interested. Gossip and grumbling. It can be, okay, I will say this because this is helpful for me. Um, Not having a husband and family to center our minds and hearts on, we're in a perfect position to be concerned with those around us. But this can quickly turn from gracious and loving attention to critical and passive attention. We observe and we see things lacking and we critique. We create expectations and they're not met and we grumble. Or we seek too much of those around us, setting the bar of attention and care to a standard that we ourselves can't and aren't keeping. Seek by God's grace to be a fountain of grace. Your speech has the power to be life-giving. Imagine the, can I say good damage? I don't think that's a word, but the goodness that, that you can do in your church simply by seeking to build up others with your speech. And then the conclusion. Because this is the most important, and this is the secret to it all, and this is the lifeblood of it all. I want to read you two quotes. This is from Robert Murray Machane. It says, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, sisters. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Psalm 1611, in his presence there is fullness of joy. How's your joy today? Where are you looking for joy? Are you living for this fullness of joy? This is what our life, our very existence is about, knowing Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. This is almost my favorite quote, probably is my favorite quote, because of who it's talking about. Do you want to know supreme joy? And this is in a book called Spiritual Depression, which is my favorite book. But I say that because... He's talking specifically to those who struggle with depression. Do you want to know supreme joy? Do you want to experience a happiness that eludes description? There is only one thing to do. Really seek Christ. Seek him, himself. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, himself. If you find that your feelings are depressed, do not sit down and commiserate with yourself. Do not try to work something up. But this is the simple essence of it. Go directly to him and seek his face. If you seek the Lord Jesus Christ and find him, there is no need to worry about your happiness and your joy. He is our joy and our happiness. Even as he is our peace, he is life. He is everything. Put at the center the only one who has a right to be there, the Lord of glory who so loved you that he went to the cross and bore the punishment and the shame of your sins and died for you. Seek him. 
Seek his face, and all other things shall be added to you. So three groups. Young ladies. Do you thirst for this joy? Or are you desperate for the attention of others in conversation, on your Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, from that one guy that you think is so cute? Do you see how it all pales in comparison to knowing Jesus? Don't let him get crowded out. He is everything. Older single ladies, do you live in this joy? You are in a season of life that many Christians envy. And that's hard to believe sometimes. You c- but you can take the time. You have the time. You can make the time for unhurried, deep, open-hearted fellowship with your Savior. And do you realize how much you can affect this world, how much you can affect every person you interact with if you are living in that joy? Have the unanswered longings and questions left you resentful in his presence? Let his love quiet your heart. Married women, do you devote time to return to your first love? Do you sense your daily, minute-to-minute need of his sustaining, comforting, satisfying presence? Because he is everything. Let us press on with all we are to know him better. It's hard living incompletely, living in a fallen world, walking by faith and not by sight. That's why we must feast our hungry souls on the living bread. No matter the season, no matter the longing, for only then can we know true, deep, lasting joy. I'll leave you with this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. The end.